still think that's a bit too laid back a theme i don't know i like it it's got a nice little groove to it i lost the computer files and i thought it was time for a change of the theme so got got the got the jazz bass out and the you know all the guitars and percussion and there you go job done that's that's beautiful i love it <laughs> but um you know i'm going on to a tangent before we've even started the show we're going to carry on with that in a second so, um, hello and welcome to Pods Like Us. I'm Martin Crubell, known to my friends as Marv, and this time I am joined by Todd Purse from Create Magic Daily Weirdo Art. Thanks for speaking with me today, Todd. Marv, thanks for having me. Very excited to be here. This is going to be fun. Now, the tangent we're going to go on is your music's created by yourself as well for your show. Yes. Yes, absolutely. The uh, the original or the intro theme is something I recorded in the garage, right? Uh, as I was having kids and slowing down playing in bands, I went out and bought a very small, you know, humble recording setup and have been teaching myself how to go through and do the whole process. And that the little intro is probably like the fifth or sixth thing I recorded in the garage completely by myself playing all the instruments and everything. So, yeah, it, it's a special one for me. Did you have an idea of what you wanted the theme to be and then create it for the show? Nope. I recorded about uh, seven different tracks that day and, fe- and fell in love with that one. That little intro part The was, I don't know what it did it for me, but that was the one I... It, uh in general music to me is all about songwriting like that's always been the most appealing part of it like i love everything from very formulaic songwriting that comes out of things like motown and uh and like to my favorite stuff like the ramones and the uh the punk movement down down to the very out there kind of experimental stuff but I have always written songs with just a guitar and kind of figured out the whole thing around that and then, you know, built it from there. With this group of songs, it was the first time I had the ability to change that completely because I could start with any instrument I want. I could just start recording. So I recorded about 13 different drum tracks that day and then just picked the couple that I thought were the best and built the songs around the drum tracks. So it was a very unique way of writing for me how that little theme came out. So are you primarily a drummer or a guitarist or, or, you, or do you call yourself whatever needs to be played? That's what I'll play. You nailed it. That's how I became a drummer. I started guitar. I play guitar and like, I guess it was around eighth grade. I picked up guitar. I tried saxophone in the school band and did the whole like pretend to play, like just do the finger movements and stuff. And then I uh, didn't realize that was not what I wanted to do. So got saved up my money from refing soccer games and bought a guitar. And then, uh, from there just fell in love with writing songs and was very very bad at it and still you know it's one of those things you're constantly very self-critical about but then eventually as i'm sure is very common with a lot of people as i started playing in bands drummers became hard to come by and i was like okay i'm just going to figure this out because if i can play the drums i can always play in a band <laughs> there's plenty of guitar players and all of that so when uh some of my 
best friends and kind of my biggest musical inspirations locally needed a drummer, needed a new band. I was like, I got this. I'll figure it out. And that's how I started playing drums. That probably I was probably about 20, 21 when I started playing drums. So much later, actually. But it's what I do mostly now. For anybody that's listening, drums is the way to go. Every band needs a drummer. <laughs> and there's so many guitarists out there and so many people who play guitar and think that they can be bass players as well. Totally. And I'll tell you, rhythm section is the most important thing in the world. Like everybody gets enamored by all the other stuff and myself included, like songwriting is my favorite, like I said, but you got to have that rhythm section. I think it was Joe Strummer who said that the rhythm section is the most important part of the band and allows everything else to exist because without that kind of solid base to really provide a backbone for the song, you can diddle around all you want, but it's kind of meaningless. And I find that that's so true. Even and it's usually in that way of like, I think Motown's a great example of it. You can hear those songs a million times and think these are beautifully written and sung and performed, but there's something, there's a core to it. And a lot of times that core is that bass and drums that like when you dial in and just listen to what they're actually doing together, it doesn't only support the song, it makes the song in a lot of ways. You've hit a sweet spot for me because I'm a huge fan of Paul Simonon's bass playing oh. in, in The Clash. I think, oh, yeah. I think him and Captain Sensible are two of the great oh, uh, yeah. bass players in the in that original punk era because mm -hmm. there was a melodicism and a very a groove to what they were playing as opposed to what a lot of other punk groups were doing where they were following essentially what yes. the guitar was doing. Those two we're taking it away from that and putting groove into punk. Oh yeah. And that's like the logical extension of the, the, the punk that I really came up on, which was your green day and your rancid, rancid and your, your lookout nineties punk that is all bass flare and all that kind of groove that you're talking about. And I think that's a direct lineage from Paul Simon and, and Captain Sensible. And I love that. And I also love the space for your DD Ramon style where you're just following the chords. And I mean, Didi's probably my favorite uh, musician, person in punk. All of that. like he he has inspired me in ways that I can't even really put to words. But the the, uh, the songwriting abilities that he had and the way that the, the Ramones in general communicate this accessibility that I think is so important. And they're one of the bands that I think a lot about in the way they had this. And it's not like a point of view that they determined that they decided they had to have, but they offered a new point of view to everything that was going on. They said, because even the bands before them that I love that are the predecessors, like your New York Dolls and your Stooges and your MC5s, they're up there very uh, indulgent still. Like, you know, the, the, the Stooges stuff is jammy as hell. And like, you know, there's definitely lots. But I love that the Ramones went up there and were like, we're going to do this in one minute, a minute and 30 seconds. It's going to be formulaic and it's going to be what we can do. But what they can, they were kind of bound by their or restrained by their uh, capabilities. And that led to breed this new art form that let people know that you don't have to be able to like jam for a half hour and be all wild and have this like very virtuoso kind of, you know, talent to get up there and do something you can just get up there and express yourself and get it out however you can and that's like my favorite part of the whole punk movement i think that's why i still like connect so strongly to that even to this day and when i go back to things that really inspire me it's 
kind of that idea inside of the the punk movement. Well, you say that, but then you mentioned MC5 and their guitar work is not basic punk. Oh, no. There are no. some incredible inversions in there and he's doing a lot of really clever stuff on the guitar on there. Oh, dude, uh, Wayne Kramer is yep. one of the best to, to, to ever do it. And like, I mean, again, uh, my favorite guitar player ever is probably Johnny Thunders. And I think it's because he kind of bridged that gap between someone like Wayne Kramer, who was, you know, very much in a very uh, sophisticated way of taking that rock and roll basic style and experimenting and expanding it. Johnny Thunders took that and brought it back to Chuck Berry and brought it back to just like you cut through everything with just four notes that you bend the hell out of and you just go for. And I I think there's this mix that happens between the two that creates some of my favorite types of, uh, you know, I guess, guitar vocabulary, for lack of a better word. And I love this. I One of the things I love about uh, this line of rock and roll and especially looking at little bits of it is how there's this thread that goes through it all like you know it just guitar solos that we were just talking about you could trace back to people like Bo Diddley and then to Chuck Berry and then you have a direct lineage from there into the Beatles and into the whole garage movement that the Beatles started in America to the Sonics to Stooges New York Dolls and even though all of these people, Wayne Kramer is a great example, are doing their own thing and kind of pushing it forward, they're also retaining something to it. And I love that there's this ebb and flow where someone like Wayne Kramer pushes it to a big max and someone like Johnny Thunders is like, I'm going to bring this back. I'm going to pull it down to its bare bones, simplest. And there's this kind of value in both of them. One's not better than the other. One's not more significant or harder or easier. It's just that each one is that musician's interpretation of this beautiful almost uh mythology that was started back in like you know blues and this very american music well there's an incredible story um uh what was it tom morello was saying from rage against the machine he said that when they did their covers album uh renegades um th- they did a really fantastic version of kick out the jams and Some of my favorites. He was saying that when they uh, when they approached doing that, he was trying to learn it, and as he was trying to learn the guitar part for that, so that they could cover it, he just noticed that there was something that he was getting slightly wrong about it. I mean, and this is Tom Morello. I mean, he's a mm-hmm. he's, he's a you know incredible guitarist himself. And then he said he had to actually go to the source to Kramer himself, and Kramer showed him what he was getting wrong on the guitar and this is how you do it that's amazing and that makes so much sense i mean the kick out the jams a lot of people forget that the the recording everyone hears it's a live recording like that whole record is is recorded live so i mean no matter how practiced you are as a band like you're never playing the same thing a million you know the same way especially live and especially in a situation like how that was recorded it's one of my favorite stories in general of of a record being made but yeah that makes so much sense and especially for i mean to hear that and to hear that like there was that much care put into it is really special and i think there's something too i love those records those cover records and those yeah. things that allow different generations to access the influence from someone like rage against the machine i i think about the cramps in this way a lot like one of the things that really introduced me to a lot of music i didn't know about for a long time was uh the the record the cramps put out the the songs the cramps taught us or the songs the lords taught us where essentially they introduced me to this whole 
underground of American rock and roll because they, you know, you, you know, your standards and stuff, but then you start learning about people like Hazel Atkins and you're like, Oh, this is the like underground of the, you know, rockabilly movement where I, I don't know if you know who Hazel Atkins is, but he's one of my favorite people to talk about because he was he was a one man band, which most people are like, oh, no, this sounds ridiculous. But essentially, he had a snare drum and a bass drum that he could play with his feet. And then he would play guitar and sing and he a lot of harmonica and stuff. And he would write songs like No More Hot Dogs and, you know, things along those lines that are just like pure wildness. And it was so i would have never known about that without the cramps doing this whole cover album and there's so many little gems that i think people can go back and be be inspired by yep and what you mentioned there about mc5 that hits another spot that i like as well i have an affinity for albums that even though they're recorded in a studio are recorded live essentially a bit like the first Beatles album, for the most part, mm. Please Please Me, their first album is a live album in the studio. Uh, the same as you've got with Raw Power by the Stooges. That is a live album, essentially, in the yes. studio. The first Van Halen album is live. The first Montrose album is live. There's a certain power, for want of a better better freight word, to an album that's recorded raw just the mm-hmm. band in the room all together and not yes. built up in sections, but just there and done and recorded like that. I cannot agree more. And those examples you just laid out gave me goosebumps because they're some of my favorite records. And I mean, this might be a, a not the most popular take, but that first Beatles records, my favorite record. Like I love yeah. the Beatles as an almost like roots R and B cover band. Like it's some of my favorite and the, it's not just that that's my favorite kind of genre of music that grew up in American culture, but the rawness that they excess and like the way that they are interpreting a very foreign, almost uh, musical mythology and putting it in their own, not their own words, essentially, but their own feeling, their own uh, aesthetic is just so inspiring to me. And it's always been really interesting how the rock and roll was exported to the Beatles and and the Rolling Stones and, you know, the UK. And it took that to reignite it really in America, because once the Beatles and all of that stuff really set in, that's when you get this giant suburban boom of garage bands that everybody kind of that middle class was growing. So people had access to electric guitars and everybody had their own little neighborhood band that could play. And that is what I love. I love seeing that creativity spread. And I think it's really interesting interesting how it has to go across sea and come back but i also love raw power is my favorite iggy record like a hundred percent and that one's super interesting because of how the mixes went how bowie put out his version of it and iggy hated it and it wasn't what iggy wanted and then eventually they let iggy go in and produce it himself and essentially put everything in the red and make it so that like this is not technically the way you're supposed to produce a record and that version is as good as the bowie produced one and it really speaks to that fact that those performances are something special it's not really just about 
because you know production and all that stuff does play a large part in what we hear as like a final piece of music like uh, a producer is as important as an engineer is as important as the musician in a lot of ways and there's uh something to remember that it's also none of that matters unless that initial take is good that initial performance i think of the sonics a lot with that too and some of the my favorite uh musical folklore revolves around the sonics who were a garage band out in i believe was Seattle, somewhere in the Pacific Northwest. And their whole thing is they wanted it to be as raw as possible. So they would go into, they would rent studio time from these like really fancy studios and they would go in there. They would refuse to record with more than one mic for the room and one mic for the vocals. That's all they wanted to use. They wouldn't mic anything inter- in, in, independently. And then as they were recording, they would start actually tearing soundproofing off wall and like start poking holes in their speakers and stuff to get more of a raw distorted sound because they wanted that live sound. And those recordings sound like nothing else. And like that is what started that kind of like really raw uh, led straight to the Stooges and that whole movement there, which is really interesting to me. Well, that goes back to people like, I don't know whether you know, but, you know, the the Kinks, for instance, Dave Davies used to do tricks Mm. like that with his amplifier where he'd cut it up. And that's how they got that really dirty guitar on You Really Got Me and All Day and All of the Night. Yes, and that's my favorite. I love people that have that, like, you know, there wasn't distortion pedals you could go buy and just kind of tweak your sound easily. So they're like, we're going to figure this out. Like, I'm going to figure out how to make this happen. And that's my favorite. The, the Kinks are also one of my favorites. And if I remember right, Dave Davies and or someone from the Kinks has a lot of fun paranormal experiences too. I believe alien experiences and such, which is always always a fun crossover there. <laughs> that's probably Dave Davies. Yeah. Super cool. <laughs> absolutely absolutely i love that i also love and it made me think of this when you with how much we're talking about the mc5 i love how much like place seems to influence certain sounds and certain musical cultures and like i think of detroit a lot about that and even before the mc5 with like motown like so motown grew up in detroit and detroit at that time was this manufacturing capital with all these cars and essentially they took that idea of manufacturing cars and applied it to music and they did it in this formulaic way that created a whole new way to look at songwriting and like inventing pop culture essentially and I think that that you know there's there's something about where you're interweaving your surroundings not only artistically but in the way things are produced and like this whole cultural influence that comes about the Beatles are another great example of that and being influenced by their surroundings and I mean my favorite example I talk about all the time is the Ramones and their relationship with CBGB like they didn't wear leather jackets because they thought leather jackets were cool they wore leather jackets so they didn't get beat up at the biker bar that they wanted to hang out and play and like there's like this whole pressure thing that happens in all these areas and and where the um, environment has a big role to play, I feel like. Yeah, I was going to go somewhere there. And, and in, you know, the interesting one there in music, we're going to get onto the show eventually, you know, your artwork and everything else. Oh, it's all good. This I, is I promise, great. <laughs> I promise. Uh, but another show, I do another show, which is called Top of Most of the Poppermost, and that's looking at the charts from 19, from when the Beatles first charted and going through the 60s and seeing how the charts worked around them and, and 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 people that were inspired by the Beatles or inspired the Beatles and how they were doing in the charts. And an interesting one we've found is that, so a lot of the American 
groups around that time, rock and roll artist and Motown, were actually doing really well in the UK. For instance, like Carole King had her first hit single in the UK in 63, but in America, she didn't get a first hit single until about 71. Mm. You see, so it's, huh. it's, uh, so what we found was that in the in the beginning of at the end no at the end of sixty three is it sixty two sixty three or whatever that there was a lot of American stuff on the UK charts but not on the American charts or like like the Motown and the rock and the rock and roll and then as the Beatles are gradually building up in the US for some reason the American rock and roll and Motown is actually getting built up in America as well. It's almost as though the people heard the Beatles doing them on their albums and then wondered, well, where did this come from? And the Beatles introduced America to their own music, essentially. I love that. And I think you're dead on. And that's so interesting that the charts kind of prove that out. Cause I, I think there's something to that. And I, I'm interested in what, and what it is that, that, that reflexiveness, because one of the things that I think probably grabbed the Beatles about hearing like Bo Diddley and Chuck Berry for the first time is how foreign it sounded is how different and exotic and like raw. And, and I got to imagine they've never heard anything like that. So in, in America at the time, culturally, that music was, um, you know, just starting to break that kind of racial cultural line. Like some of the first times you have, you know, uh, white people and black people at the same entertainment events and, and especially the South are these rock and roll count concerts and like there's these beautiful pictures of I, I think it's an eddie cochran concert in particular where like there's this the segmented lines and then eventually as the show is going those lines blur and all the races are dancing together and like i mean in america this stuff was called race music you know like it was so it's interesting that in it probably makes a little more sense in a sad way that it took a, you know, a more uh, familiar face, even if it is from the UK to make it culturally popular over here and then allow people like Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley, because it probably was the Beatles championing those people that made them the icons that they are now. And that's, that's something I, you know, I think there's probably a lot more you could say in someone that's a lot smarter than I am as far as historically and everything, but that's an interesting point, Marv, that I think there's probably a lot too. Yep. And then that would grow even more then when you'd have people like the stones would come over to uh, the Rolling Stones would come over to America and they very much included songs by Bo Diddley in their sets and in the records, on their records as well, which would then build, then you found that they were becoming more popular as well. Because there's an interesting one where the Beatles would come over to America to tour, and they were saying that they were being inspired by Bob Dylan's Freewheeling album, which mm. which then made people check out the Freewheeling album, which is, um, dare I say, possibly a reason why some Americans who saw Beatles talking about this suddenly thought, all right, we've heard of this person, weren't sure about him, but we'll check it out. And maybe that's a bit of back and forth as well, because Bob was quite popular in the folk scene in the UK to a degree over here, which might be how all that happened. It's it's weird how a group, like you said, from over here goes over there and introduces this 
mm-hmm. back to the people who created it in the first place. It's so interesting. And I, I think there's probably, it probably says a lot about uh, the way cultures interact and the way that like, you know, I think a lot about the idea of if things like this can happen anymore. Like uh, if, like I, I've said it a bunch of times in my podcast that I don't think there could be another Beatles or even another Ramones or Green Day or these bands that have these giant cultural impacts and not only the way that they're all enjoyed by a lot of people intergenerationally and interculturally, but the way that they uh, kind of formatted a cultural shift like everything we're just talking about you know kind of from Elvis to the Beatles to the Rolling Stones to the more hold on your mic's gone funny sounds almost robotic can you hear me now yep here we go okay i'm just gonna stick with the headphones then and it might sound a little different from the beginning of the podcast but at least it's not sounding like a robot (laughs) that's better that's better yeah so so what's your earliest memory then of creating artwork yeah i'd say my earliest memory is definitely hanging out with my nana and making stuff with her she was super into making crafts for like local craft fairs she'd make halloween decorations and christmas decorations my grandfather would do woodcuts and she would paint them and i would hang out with her and use all of her leftover paints that she didn't care about anymore and make giant messes so that's like the first time i remember just losing hours at a time and making artwork so it's a bit like a bit like your own kids coming in and actually doing their artwork while they're in the studio with you then Yes, it's a. I try and keep that open door policy where they can just come in and mess with all my stuff. I've never, luckily, never been one to invest too much into my supplies. So I just let them have at whatever I have. I buy pretty cheap brushes and paints and everything. So I just kind of encourage them to come in and make a mess with me. <laughs> That's great. So, what sort of techniques and equipment do, do you use? I mean, is it all is it all on a pad now, or do you still use? Uh, traditional techniques like paints and chalks and uh, pencils? Yeah, it's a little bit of both, to be honest. So, I mean, uh, as far as professionally and what I do for a living, I'd say it's you know 80% on the tablet at this point. I'm still not super comfortable with sketching and uh, kind of starting that create the creation process like the idea process i still prefer a piece of paper and a pencil and i don't know what it is but i feel a lot looser when i'm working in a physical material and there's something to kind of like energetic loose drawings as a starting point i've always loved like when i look at my favorite cartoonists growing up it's people like jack davis who have these ways of making these uh it's still 2d flat images so lifelike and movie and bouncy and i want that and it's hard for me to do that initially on the ipad so once i get the idea down it's pretty much take a picture of it and make a finished piece of art on the ipad for regular work but i try to as much as possible either start the day or finish the day with a physical painting screen printing i do a lot of printmaking it's one of my favorite things to do to kind of uh break that creative monotony of just working on the on the tablet there so i do a lot of uh 
printmaking and then I do a lot of painting woodcuts I'm really again probably the influence from my nana and stuff growing up but I still make a lot of uh, just silly woodcuts lots of monsters or goblins or UFOs and stuff like that so I try to keep my hand in the messy area as well as the digital <laughs> well you've made me think then that my uh, going to comics my favorite my favorite artists are probably the ones that use that that's that, that are you know I like modern comics as they are, but there's something about the people, the the artists who used to create the art back in the day. I'm thinking of, you know, some of the standouts would be the Ramita Junior and Senior, uh, mm-hmm. Ditko and Kirby, and those sort of people who worked with traditional methods like pencil and then colouring and and that. There's something about their artwork that is has more life to it than 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 the modern comics. No, absolutely. I think there's a few areas of why that that is so. One, I think that those guys you just uh, cited are some of my favorites, and all of them are kind of innovators in the language of cartooning. Like just uh, Kirby is probably the the biggest example, but he created a whole different visual language. Like if you look at the progression of his work and the kind of uh, the, the mark making that he implements and things, no one else is making marks like that. No one else is putting compositions and making these exaggerated, really foreshortened and just kind of unrealistic uh beautiful bombastic drawings like he is and i think that's one of the the things that's so special about that time period ramada and ramada jr are the same way especially ramada jr and the the expression that he gets out and the movement in his in his pencils is something that's super special but i do think there is comics is one of those things that the way that it's produced influences the artwork so much if you listen to guys like kirby and the the kind of old school cartoonists they felt very limited by their printing, the way that these comics are printed because they're poorly printed. The the blacks are going to bleed a little bit. The colors, you have this four color separation process that is very hard to understand as an artist who's not having direct hands in it. You know, these things got shipped out to essentially, uh, you know, different places. One of the biggest ones, I think it was in Connecticut where it was, you know, very like a couple a couple ladies doing all of the watercolor and color separations by hand. So you're losing control of this stuff, but it also kind of formulated what we think of the aesthetics of comics. It, it, that four color separation and those printing restraints made comics the special thing that they are. So in the nineties in the late nineties and the early two thousands, when digital coloring and these things really came into the the mainstream and was applied to a format like comics, it kind of lost that special thing. The com the comics in the early two thousands and that late nineties, they get muddy and there's all these Browns and it's trying, it's like, they're trying to paint things realistically. And they're losing the fact that it's supposed to be bright pinks and yellows and blues. It's not supposed to be like earth tones. And like, there's a way to do it right. There is like realistic comics that are painted beautifully 100%. But I feel like the more that they try and the more that you try and uh, lean into those inherent limitations in the medium and allow those to be what makes the medium beautiful, the more successful comics are in general. And that's why like even through the 80s with Alan Moore and all those comics that are still so prevalent, it, it functions in that way of traditional comic making where once those digital tools became accessible, it was hard not to use them for a lot of people. (laughs) 
Well, I mean, you 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 saw a change from uh, so so we're going we're going into comics now. Here we go. People all love this. I'm in. So um, when you go into what's called, what's known as the Silver Age, which is the seventies, so the early seventies to the early eighties, that's that's known as the Silver Age. I think uh, you already see a difference there because you've already got. Um, definitely an advancement in Kirby because the early 70s, you've got the rise of him doing the work with Eternals. Um, yep. And then when he moved over from, from Marvel and went over to DC, you've got his incredible work with New Gods. And it's just so different. The printing changed completely the way that those mm-hmm. colours didn't bleed. So there were much clearer lines and much the colours didn't bleed through so much. And there were... There were works of art which would lead to people like alex ross eventually an artist like that coming into the fore and alex ross is an artist his work is done paint which is very rare for comic art comic book art and i think it's one of those things that it's so rare again because of the medium and i think you're absolutely right that transition into new gods for kirby you not only saw him like completely solidify these motifs he had been working on visually like the kirby crackle but he starts introducing elements like those collage elements where he has these beautiful collage pages that he's drawing over these space and interdimensional themes over top of and then you have the actual stories that he's starting to present where he's like leaning into these um old mythologies of these uh, essentially these creation myths and he's retelling them for this modern comic book thing and i mean i think there's a lot of people a lot of people that are much smarter than i that have cited how comics are the modern mythology and are the modern folklore and i i think that he kind of was into that idea or onto that idea a little before a lot of people were and yeah it's super interesting to think about that transition from somebody like kirby all the way down to alex ross and the fact that even now where you have tools like procreate and these digital painting things where you can mimic an alex ross painting and it'll be hard to tell like which one's physically painted and which one is digitally painted if it's done right you still don't see people kind of executing those works because i think it is so hard to to mix those two like alex ross was not only an amazing painter but he he loved comics and he loved the the format and that came through in the way that he put those books together like kingdom come and stuff and i think that it's rare to find a person that has love for kind of both worlds where they love being a lush oil painter and they also love cartooning and there's something that you kind of have to have a passion for both of them to make it work if that makes sense yeah but i, I see all also I, I don't know whether this is whether i'm seeing this correctly or not but i see a similarity between you, yourself and somebody like kirby and to a lesser degree ditko where mm-hmm. They ended up. They ended up originally. They started as the artist to, to to Stan Lee, etc. So the, the, it's like a team, and eventually they became creators in their own right. But unlike Stan and some of these others, they were the whole thing. So you'd find Ditko creating, like you know, the the, the Doctor Strange, and you'd find you know Eternals being created by by Kirby and the New Gods being created by Kirby. So they were creating the whole thing, the artwork, the story behind it, everything was actually from them. And it's like yourself with your artwork, you're creating art, but 
you're creating the story that that artwork is based on as well, if that makes sense. Oh, it totally does. And I think that is one of the kind of magical parts of comics and sequential art in general is that it can be a singular voice. Those examples are perfect examples because, I mean, I don't know, and this might be a different view than a lot of people have who know more about comics history, but I don't know if Kirby could have done things like the Eternals and the New Gods without his work with Stan Lee before that creating the Fantastic Four and I know he's shortchanged in a lot of the ways and luckily that's been kind of corrected through history but the uh, the comic artist was not always getting the credit that they deserved as far as coming up with the actual uh, stories and narrative and everything but I think that the comics in general allow for even in those instances where it's a writer and an artist for this kind of singular voice that most medias don't allow for. If you think of how many people are involved in making something like a movie or a TV show, like that, there's not a singular voice. Like we think of, you know, directors with singular voices. We think of like all these people that have like, you know, what we would say is their aesthetic or their style. Really, it's not though. When you come to like movies, and there's so many other people that are influencing these things, and they from director of photography all the way down to set designers and costumes, and like there's so much going on that it can't just be one person's voice. And it would probably be worse as an art form if it was one person's voice, where comics are the opposite. It's almost better when it is that singular voice and it's that creator who does it all and kind of puts everything out there because it's it's not. I think it's not only about that kind of singular voice going on, but it's also just about the amount of kind of creative labor that goes into doing something like a comic. Like it takes way more when I even just do those four panel goblin comics, the amount of time I have to put in to do one of those versus one kind of illustration based piece is wild. Like it's like three times the amount of time coming up with the concept, breaking out the flow, making sure everything kind of works correct from panel to panel. So I think that there's something to this like imaginal labor that goes into comics that is very unique as well and kind of plays into that same thing as like the singular voice from a creator that you've spoke of but yeah i think you're dead on with that <laughs> it's good to know so what why do so for, for anybody that, that doesn't know the, the the show create magic daily weirdo art it, it started off as and it, it still is for the most part a show where uh between five and ten minutes you will discuss the artwork that you've created that day, uh, yes. where the inspiration came from, what what uh, what the artwork was, and for anybody interested, the best way to look is to 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 do to listen to this podcast is on something else other than Apple Music because Apple Music <laughs> just gives you the generic uh, logo, whereas if if you go to most other players, you get the actual artwork that that show is about on the show artwork. So you're able yeah. to look at the artwork and hear the story behind where that artwork came from. But, I mean, what what made you decide to do a daily podcast? Because that is a bit of a grind. <laughs> I have a problem where I'm not really good at doing things half, half-heartedly. Um, so it was a bunch of things, honestly. Like, I my normal story and the one that, I mean, it is the story, was I started doing a zine again called Personal Folklore. And I was having a lot of, like, I was, I'd been a full-time artist for a while at this point, and I'm very grateful for it, but I felt like I was missing something. I was getting a little creatively stuck, and I was like, 
I want physical artwork again. I want to make things again that are physical besides painting. So I was like, I'm going to start a monthly comic zine, which is I called personal folklore. And even if I don't sell more than five, I'm just going to make one issue a month. I'm going to do this and figure out how, you know, how it goes. And I just, I like setting goals and limitations that are a little high. And that was, you know, doing a monthly publication was a, was a lot more than I had uh, ever done before, but I wanted to try. So I started doing that. It went pretty well. And people asked for a way to subscribe. So I started a Patreon where people could sign up and get the comic ships to them every month. And then since I had the Patreon, someone brought up the idea of doing a little podcast where I talk about the artwork that I'm posting and essentially what you just described. And I was like, that's a good idea. I'm going to try that. And of course, I was like, I'm just going to do this every day. I do a new drawing every day. I'm going to sit down and talk about it for five minutes and we'll see what happens. And I just recently did it for a full year. I hit my 365 day mark and I was like, wow, I can't believe I actually did that every day for a year. And I plan to keep doing it, but I think it's a, there's something special to not knowing how hard things are and not having ever done a podcast. I didn't know how much time everything took to, especially to get everything set up and going So now it's pretty plug and play for me. Like I have my files set up and I can just kind of record my rambling for the day and switch out the music real easy. But uh, yeah, if I knew how much work it would be in the long run, I may not have tr had tried. So I'm glad I didn't. There's something to that kind of beginners not knowing thing that allows you to do silly stuff. <laughs> so, but what works is, I mean, the show seems, uh, I, I don't know whether I'm picking this up right. I'm, I'm guessing so. But that seems as created on the spot as the artwork that you're creating as well. It's almost like an extension of the artwork. You've done the artwork there and then on the spot. You've had the inspiration, done the artwork, and then suddenly you go to a microphone. This is how I did it. And now whatever comes out of your mouth, that's that's what the show is. A hundred percent. And that it's really funny because I end up – learning more about why I drew things from doing this show than I ever have before. Like the, the amount of self-reflection that goes in unpurposefully. I mean, I'm usually doing these. It's the first thing I say in the world in the morning is into this microphone usually. Cause I get up around four, four thirty. I do my drawing and have my coffee and kind of get my day going. And then after I'm done the drawing, I sit down here in the garage and I, I talk into the microphone. So there's a lot of times where I I listen back and I'm like, I don't remember saying that at all. And it's very, you know, free flowing. And I love it because it allows me to kind of examine things that I wouldn't normally examine, like why I am so, I guess, drawn to, to certain imagery and why I have these different motifs that pop up over and over again. And doing something every day for so long allows you to it gives you the structure that you can play with and you can break whenever you want. And that kind of is what led to like the interviews and the weird Delaware uh, segments I do on Wednesdays because I had this daily structure, but I wanted to do more with it because I think part of where that inspiration or that creative magic comes from is this mixture, this paradox of having structure and then breaking the structure. You hear people talk about it a lot from like, if you have, 
is something as simple as let's say you have a path you take every day to go to work. Just change that path. Just walk down a slightly different road and you're going to find a completely different worldview. And I, I think that the same thing can be said creatively. Like you can do the same thing over and over again and there's a value to that. But sometimes the value is breaking the mold after doing it for a hundred times or, you know, and then going back and reverting to the original mold and then breaking it again. So I love having these kind of consistent structures to play with. That's like Richie Blackmore of Deep Purple saying that, um, what is it, Smoke on the Water is an inversion of Beethoven's Fifth. I love that. I've never heard it. I've never heard that before, but that makes so much sense. <laughs> I read an interview. Uh, no, I saw an interview on YouTube with him and he was saying about it. He said it's basically because it's all fourths chords. Ah, and he oh, says wow. it is It is basically, duh, 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 but he says it's changed around. He says it's the same but it's changed around and slightly changed rhythmically, but it is, mm -hmm. that is smoke on the water. No, I love that. And I think there's, it's one of the things that, and I don't know how well I'm expressing this uh, verbally, but it's one of the things I love about that kind of formulaic um, creativity I was talking about in regards to like Motown or even like the, the Ramones are one of my favorite examples of this, where you can put out like, you know, 10 records that are using the same structures and chord progressions, but every record they stumble upon gold. Like one, like I'm one of those dudes that can listen to every Ramones record and there's at least three or four hits on each one that you, you, you never know where they're going to come with it and how, what, what makes it that special standout but there's something about having these uh rigid structures to allow creativity to break that i think is really important so would you say then that early in the morning is the best time for creativity when it comes to artwork who that's a great question. It's something I thought about a lot. I, I definitely subscribe to the idea that it's all individual. You know, everybody has their own relationship to creativity and the, the larger kind of idea pool or muse or whatever you want to call that inspiration, right? It's just like physical fitness. Like there's not one prescribed way to be a healthy human. Like everybody has a different standard of healthy and different things. There's there's practices we can all do that will have positive outcomes, but how much of each of those practices is different from an individual basis, right? So I think creativity is kind of the same thing. For me, I found that that is 100% the truth. And I've thought about it in a bunch of different ways because I used to be the type that would stay up all night. Like I wouldn't start working creatively until like midnight, 11 o'clock usually. And I'd be up till three or four on the back end and having uh, kids and getting into um, one of the main industries that I do stuff for one of the main companies I work with is a coffee roasting company. It's a very uh, early morning crowd that I had to learn to work with in a lot of ways. So there's these life shifts that made it so that staying up till four in the morning wasn't really possible anymore. And I was like, oh no, what do I do? But then I just kind of realized that if I flip it and I get up at four in the morning, I can still have that same creative, it still had that same feeling to me. And I was like, what is it about the nighttime? What is it about the early morning hours? Like, And I thought about a few different ways at this point. One, it's quieter. There's nothing going on. Like, I don't have to worry about my phone. I don't have to worry about the kids. I don't have to worry about anything except for what's in front of me right then. There's less of everything happening in the world. It's quiet out there. I think there's something special to connecting to where we started talking about. I can't remember if we were recording or not, but connecting to that kind of, cre that 
source of creativity, whatever you want to call it, whether you're playing music or drawing or writing, there's something about the quiet that allows you connect to connect to that easier. And then I started thinking about it slightly different because I realized as I was doing my podcast and interviewing all these other creatives, so many of them are functioning in the same time period. So, so many of them are doing what I used to do where they stay up until 4 a.m. or the other half are doing what I do now where they get up at 4 a.m. So I'm like, oh, there's something about this time that seems to call creatives. And maybe it's kind of like the more people that are working creatively at that time, the easier it is to access that kind of group consciousness, that big idea pool. So the more people accessing the idea pool, the easier it is for you to access. It's kind of how I think about it, if that makes sense. So yeah, I think there's something special about that quiet time of the day and night. But you're also opening yourself to all forms of inspiration because when you when you do your show, you're explaining how you, you're inspired by podcasts that you've listened to and all sorts of things. So whatever is there, you're open to inspiring you. So what do you look for, for inspiration? Or is it just an op- just a well that's completely open? Yeah, it's I, I try to keep it completely open. And I, I think that quiet time is so important for this because I do, like, after that morning time, once the kids are up, I'm either interacting with the kids all day. I'm interacting with other clients than like my, the people I work with on a daily basis for like the coffee company and stuff, or I'm listening to podcasts while I'm drawing. So I constantly am having input come in throughout the day. And then that quiet morning time is a way to see what pops out. Like usually when I quiet that inner voice, a little line from different podcasts will pop out and I'll be like, Ooh, that's the thought I want to like figure out how to rephrase and stay in my own way, whether it's visually or through a little story or however I want to do it. So I try and keep that well really open because I think that inspiration can come from anywhere. And like, I, I listen to a lot of paranormal podcasts and I listen to a lot of things along those lines and draw a huge amount of inspiration from those. But I also listen to a lot of like religious podcasts and spiritual spirituality podcasts. I, one of my, biggest things I've been listening to recently is old Ramdas talks on YouTube because I I feel very connected to a lot of what he has to say through different points in my life. And this is one of them where like I'm in a huge, uh, huge Ramdas kick. But I kind of try to also balance that out by listening to things like the Doughboys, which is one of my favorite podcasts and it's just completely silly and about reviewing chain restaurants. And like I I think there's so <laughs> much and what's interesting is my interest in the paranormal and the anomalous and the strange, it filters through all of it. Like I'll pick up on a Doughboys episode where they'll talk about aliens for a half hour and it'll be, I'll pick up a little nugget of something I would have never heard from an alien or a UFO podcast because it's a different viewpoint on it. It's these comedians that are now talking about it. So I really think it, it, there's value in keeping all of those reality tunnels open as Robert Anton Wilson used to talk about, jumping from reality tunnel to reality tunnel and taking the little bits that are helpful or, or supportive for you and then leaving the rest behind and not getting stuck. I think uh, belief and rigid thinking and all of those things is kind of a trap you can get stuck in. And the more that you can have uh, a wider pool of inspiration, the less that you can go down that road. I'm going to say this is a nod to Jordan Heath here with this one. But so... Have you always been into the strange and unusual? 
<laughs> I love it. Um, yeah, as as far as I can remember, I have been. I was just uh, talking about this on another podcast because I've really been sitting with where not only my interest in like the strange and unusual comes from, but like where the create my interest in creativity comes from. And I think it goes back to two things. One, I mentioned earlier, my Nana and working, like sitting and drawing and painting with her. She had a very, she was an old school Catholic, had almost like a Catholic mysticism view of the world, like believed in angels, not only in the like, you know, uh, folkloric mythology sense, but that her parents were physical angels that lived in the house and watched over them. And like, she would call me every night to say angels on your shoulders and just very much had this very, um, this mix of the real and the metaphysical and the spiritual all in one. And she was also a uh, pediatric nurse and for a long time in her life. And she would, while we were painting and making stuff, she would tell us these stories of her being a nurse and having these experiences with terminally ill kids where they would come, she would go to check on them and they would tell her something along the lines of, you know, I've always wanted this bike and I now have this shiny red bike at the end of my bed and I can't wait to ride it tomorrow. And it's right there. Can you see it? And I'm going to have so much fun riding it. And she'd be like, oh, yeah, I see it. That's a, that's a beautiful bike. You're going to have so much fun riding it tomorrow. And then she would come the next day and the kid would have passed on or, you know, would have passed away. And there's all of these little points where she would just tell us these stories and not say, not tell us what she thinks about it or what she thinks that it, it hints at, but just kind of give us these like curiosity points that there's something bigger out there. And I think that was a big influence on my openness to what, you know, what can be and everything. And then I think the the other thing that I referenced a ton is definitely the Treehouse of Horrors series of The Simpsons, yeah. which is like one of my favorite. I still rewatch it every year, all the episodes of Halloween time. It's still my favorite. Uh, th- like I have such vivid memories of getting so excited for October and waiting for those episodes to drop. And it introduced me to so many concepts outside of just like you know, more sci-fi, Twilight Zone concepts, these bigger, weird things instead of just the cryptids or the UFOs. And then once I got older and realized that they're pulling from all these beautiful mythologies like Twilight Zone and these things, I was like, oh, The Simpsons taught me that a long time ago. And so I think that that was a perfect time because also right at that time when I was growing up, the Simpsons went right into the X-Files, both on Sunday night and in reruns. So I watched a lot of X-Files at the same time. So I think all those things kind of got my interest going at an early age. And then I stuck with it for the most part. <laughs> but I find that your artwork, not only does it have that element of, of the strange and unusual with the cryptids and this sort of thing as well, but there's also a good sense of humor in there as well. Yeah. Which might come from the Simpsons, maybe. Thank you. That that means a lot to me, actually. No, I, I think that definitely has to do with my uh I've said to my friend AP the other day that I think my inner voice is like 90% the Simpsons. I think it's just quotes from the Simpsons that play in my head all day long. And I definitely think that for my worldview. And the other thing that I think really had a heavy influence on me. So growing up, I wasn't like a superhero comic book kid. Like I didn't get into like those type of comics until high school almost really. Or, and like I didn't really get into comics until after high school when I had my own money to burn and really, really spent some time in the local comic shops. But I loved 
comic strips growing up. I loved Calvin and Hobbes. It was my favorite yeah. thing ever. And I think that that um, kind of whimsical worldview is something that really imprinted. And I, I want that part of it. And I, I think that that's kind of uh, a big part of what I try and the humor I try to reinterpret into my work. And I, I think it also has to do with just the anomalous in general, when you really get in past the surface level of these strange stories and these different kind of anomalous cases, there is a thread of humor to it. There is this absurdity in the best way that is kind of my favorite part of a lot of these stories. And it's what makes not only is it what I think makes them stand out to me, but I think the ones that have humorous elements are the ones that have staying power that stick around in culture for the longest time. And it takes that kind of, if it's not funny, what's the point, you know, like if you can't laugh at it and have fun with it, then do you really want to live with it for that long. So I think that the more that these, um, these encounters that can be seen as scary and very, you know, very novelty breaking or novelty inducing and reality breaking can also be very fun. And it's important to remember that. <laughs> I'm now imagining people doing these Sasquatch photographs and, and just saying to each other, let's see how many people are going to be fooled by this. <laughs> exactly. And I love that, man. So my favorite thing about all this stuff, is getting people to live and think a little stranger and remember that we live in a, an enchanted world. Like the, the world does not need re-enchantment. It is as enchanted as it ever needs to be. And sometimes it takes dressing up in a Sasquatch costume with your friends and running around the woods to remember that. And I'm cool with that. Like I, it's why I kind of love hoaxes and I love like, I love the fake stuff that is admittedly faked as much as I love anything that's supposed to be completely real because any of it is a way to just kind of remember that we're a very small part of all of this and we should just have fun with the time that we have here. <laughs> Plus it's a form of escapism and everybody needs that form of escapism as well. Totally. No, absolutely. I agree. And uh, usually those forms of escapism are, um, they're pointing at something that's more real than what a lot of, a lot of us accept as reality. Like if you look at the, the works of fantasy and mythology there are these nuggets of things that it seems like Western science is just catching up with proving in our silly little way of doing it. Like there's so much knowledge and intuitive, not knowledge in that kind of culturally learned knowledge, but the intuitive knowledge that we seem to have the ability to access as humans that I think the more playful we are with things, the more we can kind of lean into that side of knowledge and our, our special brain power. <laughs> So while we're on this, then, here is a question from one of our mutual friends, okay? All right, I'm ready. Why, hello, guys. My name is Vuk, and I'm the host of Tracing Gowls podcast. And currently, I have finished my shift at work. I work night shifts, and I'm laying in bed. It's 3 a.m., and for some reason, I'm thinking of my buddy Todd. <laughs> but nevertheless, I was told to ask him a question. And uh, since Todd, as I have heard recently doing an episode with him, loves seafood but cannot ever indulge in it because his partner does not really like seafood, I'm going to ask Todd this very simple question. If given the opportunity, which of these three would you rather eat? 
the Ompax, the Giant Shrimp of Bremerton, or the Nevada Giant Space Clams? Wow. Okay. That's a wonderful question. I'm going to go with the giant shrimp. I, I love me some shrimp. And, uh, you know, I could take down a human sized shrimp. I feel like I clams I could never do. And uh, I don't think that I could do. I, I believe he's referring to a UFO that is a sentient living uh, being that resembles a clam in that one. So I don't think I could eat or take down a UFO sized clam. And uh, the, the own packs, that's just a whole whole mess I don't want to get into. <laughs> so, yes, giant shrimp all day long. I love that. <laughs> I'm with you on that. Like a good shrimp. Absolutely. You never know what you're going to get from Vuk. No, no. That's my uh that's one of my favorite parts of being friends with him. (laughs) Absolutely. So how do you record and edit your show? So I pretty much do well. I now I'm going to have to see what's going on because usually I just do it through this uh, little audio in, interface in my garage and record it onto GarageBand and edit right in there. I have a file that's pretty much set up so that I can just kind of take out the vocal and put in the new song and the the day's recording. So I mean, logistically, that's pretty much it. I I try to do them by. Like I said, around five or so, five thirty every day. So I record out in the garage, which is separate from the house. So I have to leave the house and come into the garage and everything. So it takes a, a minute to get out here, which has been one of my favorite kind of side benefits of the podcast because I get to walk outside through the backyard and you know between four and five, it's usually dark. The moon's usually still up, and I'll just stand there and stare at the stars for a while. And I don't get to do that very often. Like by the time the sun's down, I'm like ready for bed and ready to, you know, end the day for the most part. So it's been it's been nice to have that reintroduced. But then when you're then walking from where you've done the artwork to going to record the show, that then at that time in the morning, you've got that beautiful time in the morning when wildlife are out and you can hear the birds out and you can hear whatever nature is out and about and it allows you to enjoy that actual moment or that that period of the day which you would miss otherwise absolutely and it's one of those things that i try and stop myself because there's plenty of days that i don't wake up at 4 4 4 30 i'll, I'll sleep in to like 5 30 and be like oh no i slept in it's 5 30 and then i feel silly for saying that but so i'll be kind of rushing to get things done before the kids get up because like you said at that point that's the only time where it can definitely feel like a grind where i feel like okay i have to get an episode up and now i only have the small amount of time before the kid gets up but what I realize is usually if if I utilize that to kind of stop that moment of walking from the kitchen to the garage to stop and like look around, listen to the birds and stuff, usually I calm down and have a way better episode. But if I'm just rushing and just kind of running from the garage like mind, mindlessly, it's usually a lot more rambly and not quite as uh, as smooth as I'd like to think it would be. <laughs> so that's interesting you mentioned that. That definitely has a big impact on the way the show goes. That's me when I wake up at two o'clock in the morning to talk to people in foreign countries. Oh yeah, I guess you have to deal with that a lot, huh? But I mean, but then you have the the you have the the odd episode where you are, uh, shall we say, um, potential chaos could happen. 
shall we say, and you're not the only presenter of your show. Yes, yes, that's very true. I find that very often, especially especially on the uh, interview segments, like the creative weirdos segment of the podcast. I find uh, there there seems to be something else going on leading me around to the different people to talk to, which is always very interesting to me. I mean, when you have when you have when you have your son there, you know, sort of like you know talking with him, and oh. and then he has his own, um, should we say, his own strange and unusual uh, people with him. Yes, no, that is the very that's been one of my favorite parts of getting into all of this is definitely leaning into those bring being able to be with him and allow him to do those things. And then the stuff that he comes up with is some of my favorites. I was just telling somebody about his relationship with cats and death that I think is super interesting because he has this he has this thing where he we had a cat right before he was born named Hondo. Hondo was around for probably like six months after he was born. Very short time where they interacted. And he still talks about Hondo. My wife has a tattoo of him. We have his ashes on the mantle. He's still prevalent in the house, I guess. But he randomly starts telling me that Hondo is not dead. He lives in Paris and he takes a plane from Paris to Teddy's bedroom every night and comes in the window and hangs out with Teddy. And I'm like, interesting i did not i didn't know that he let me let me know what he has to say is hondo happy in paris and he just has this whole story built up and then a couple days later he's like hey dad hondo started bringing his other friend and i'm like huh and he's like yeah he's got a new friend with him like that's interesting what's his new friend's name and Teddy's like i don't know he told me not to tell you and i'm like oh that's a little creepy but okay and then after that conversation he stops talking about it for a while right and i'm like yeah. okay that's cool like that was a little a little weird but kids are kids are weird that's that's what they do and then like i, I want to say it was a week after that he said that our local we have uh this local fox that we've seen since we've lived at the house that runs in our backyards we call him foxy he's always around especially in the springtime he uh, got hit by a car like one of the neighbors actually put a little grave plot form and stuff so we're walking through the neighborhood as a family and we see that foxy has a little grave marker and we take teddy over there i'm like oh foxy must pass away we talk to the neighbor and they tell us about what happened and then teddy looks at me he's like oh that's who's been coming with hondo at night into my room that was the other person was foxy and i'm like wow that is a really interesting response to this i love it so yeah there's this like whole open conversation that's going on with my kid that's very interesting via these podcasts and it takes me down different roads all the time that i did not plan on (laughs) but there's an incredible creativity there within within teddy there yes yes and it definitely fuels my creativity for sure (laughs) absolutely wow i i didn't think we'd get that, that but that's great so all the logo and the artwork is done by yourself as well Uh, And you've touched on the episodes where you started talking with, you know, fellow creatives and people who are interested in the paranormal, the strange, well, anybody really who who Mm -hmm. takes your fancy. So how did you go from doing the daily podcast to that suddenly coming up? Was that something that you had originally in mind to do, or was it just something where you've suddenly built these relationships with people and it's just happened by chance. I think it's a little bit of both, to be honest with you. I've been 
especially with the year anniversary that just happened, I've been reflecting a lot on the podcast and why I started it and what it, what where it's going and what it kind of means to me. And one of the things that I think I was uh, maybe not honest with myself about is I may have started the daily podcast to get to the interview segment of the podcast, if that makes sense, because there's been so many instances where I listen to different people that really inspire me, whether it's authors or thinkers or artists or, you know, all these different folks that are on podcasts. And I'll be like, I want to talk to them. I want my idea. I want them to hear my ideas and see what they think about it. And like, I realized quickly after starting the daily podcast, oh, I have a podcast now. I might as well reach out to some people and see if they want to talk to me. So you can definitely hear the progression of my interviews and like the style. I get more confident with who I'm reaching out to and how I'm talking to them. And I mean, I think I've done 41 interviews or so now, and I'm still, I don't consider myself really great at it yet because there's still times where I look back and I'm like, man, I just rambled for 10 minutes to ask a question. But a lot of that is because I'm getting to talk to these people that I've just wanted to bounce these ideas. I'm not as interested about where they grew up or how they got into what they're doing. Or I, I've heard their normal spiels a lot on all these other podcasts. And I want to talk to them about different things usually that are related to what they talk about normally. But I kind of like trying to break that flow and get something a little different out of them. And usually it's uh, it's successful in the way that I could come away from the conversation feeling really uh, inspired. And that's been the biggest benefit of doing these creative creative weirdos segments is just talking to this wide range of inspirational folks from both creative, like you said, at this point, it's pretty much anybody that I think uh, is doing something interesting and inspiring out there. So it really runs the gambit as far as who I have on these days. Yep. It's interesting you say that because from my side with my show, I had an original concept for it. And that concept was sort of like, it's still there to a degree. But when I did the recorded the first ever episode, I suddenly I realized during that first ever episode, which was sprung on me essentially, it was supposed to be the week after or something. And then the person said, Oh, let's do it now, which <laughs> caught me unawares. And it was during that that I suddenly realized that the more interesting thing about podcasters is the subject that they're discussing, how the how enlivened that subject makes them because that's what makes them actually do the podcast in the first place because they are so um that subject is so much a part of them that it's like a way that they have to they have to push it out it's a bit like music and art is a part of us and we have to well not art for me so much i mean i'm terrible but it's much a part of us that we, it's like something we have to do to get it out there and that's the more interesting thing as opposed to the the little bits of, yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, we've gone into that, you know, we've gone into, ah, do you record this, you know, the logo, this, that, and the other bit, the background of the show. But the more interesting thing is the background of that subject that you're talking about and now that interests you because that is the more interesting thing than than, than all the technical side of podcasting. Absolutely. And I think podcasting is a beautiful way to connect to that, um, that kind of 
that method of enjoyment, that that way of looking at things. And I think on Vuk's episode that you did, you spoke about um, really falling in love with a sports podcast that you don't normally have any interest in sports, but the way that these people are passionate by it and the way that they talk about it made it, it you know exciting for you. And I think there's so much like that that you can find via these uh, essentially podcasts made out of people's passions that you can take. And even if you you know don't have a fascination with sports you can take what they're talking and apply that to music or these other things and you realize that people what gets people excited is the thing like that is like kind of like the special little little spark that we get to experience and being able to kind of hone down on that is really interesting and I, I love that that's what's popped out at you for doing this show because it's super it's something that I think I've resonated more. There's a lot of podcasts that on paper, I'm like, I should love this podcast. Like it has all of the subject material I like. It has like the interview, the guests I like. And But there's certain things that just don't click with it. There's certain things that just don't, you know, I think it comes down to uh, that passion. And I, I think, I guess the best word for it is sincerity. I think there's a, there's a sincereness that needs to be there for, for, and that's why like you can listen to the most mundane, like it could be a podcast about chairs and it could be the most inspirational thing ever. If that person is sincerely impassioned by the idea of chairs, like there's so, so much to sincerity. And I think podcasting and media consumption in general these days really speaks to if it's not something that people have a general connection to or is a authentic worldview it's probably not going to break that barrier it's a lot less about quality these days it's something i think about a lot because i think there used to be this idea that you just do the work and the work will be good and it will speak for itself it can be undeniable and I don't think that's the case anymore in a lot of realms as far as just the craft. I don't think just like having being a virtuoso in anything is enough anymore. I think you also have to have this sincere love and this idea of kind of a worldview or a, a unique point of view to it as well, if, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it's like people that make radio programs that have a specific, it's a bit like the um, uh, Bob Dylan did a radio show which was called the theme time how theme time hour and that one he picked a theme each time and all the songs were based on this specific theme that he played in the show cool. and that's what made it interesting because it he was interested in that subject whereas if you listen to most radio shows they're almost like cut and paste where mm -hmm. it's the same show following on from each other with a different presenter, essentially. Yes. Well, if you have these different shows that are specific about a specific subject, that that person is, like you said, enthusiastic about, that is more interesting. I think you just hit on something that's very fascinating to me and something I've been thinking about a lot. And that is, I mean, I love barrier dis dissolvement and I love how accessible creativity is and how anybody can make a podcast and put it out there. Anybody can make a record. Anybody can make a drawing. Like all of these things are beautiful. But I think one thing that has been kind of lost, and that was a great example in Bob Dylan, is almost like these uh, tastemakers or these people that they were gatekeepers to a certain ex extent, but they also were, there was something special to, uh, I'm trying to think of a good, okay, here's a good example that I use a lot is uh, Danny Fields. Danny Fields is one of my favorite characters in music history, right? And he 
essentially worked for Sire Records and he was a talent agent. He's who discovered the MC5. He's who discovered the Stooges, the Ramones, all of these people. And he's known as the coolest guy in the room. He was the person that everybody wanted to be around, but he had no real artistic output in his, in his own. He was a curator and he was hired by these people that had no clue what was going on in these new underground movements to bring those creatives to a bigger audience. There's not really that structure anymore for better or worse. Like there's not that person that's out there. And the reason Danny Fields did that so well is because he loved Iggy and the Stooges. When he saw Iggy, he said, this is it. This is my, like, I'm going to put this on a major label, even though it's this, you know, young heroin addict writhing around on the ground, half naked, cutting himself. And like, he's like, this is what I'm going to bring to Sire and my bosses. And like, this is the thing that I'm going to champion. So without those kind of people, like what you explained Bob Dylan doing with explaining, curating that, that music or Danny Fields did kind of finding these underground movements that changed culture in general. It's, it's interesting to me what floats to the top and how, much of it is kind of decided by algorithms and things that we don't understand. Like I understand Danny feels going out and finding Iggy and the Stooges. I don't understand how the algorithm chooses to show me what it shows me or suggest what it suggests. And the algorithm probably does a really good job at finding uh, things that align with what I, my taste and my likes. But I think there's something it's missing in that like it can't find what I don't like and present it to me. And it might be what I don't like that is the thing that inspires me to do the next big creative project. And that's where I feel like we're missing something these days from that kind of like uh, gatekeeping or kind of boundary that used to be there. If any of that, that was a long ramble because I've been thinking about that a lot recently. <laughs> well, that's, that's a lot like, you, you know, when we've both been in bands before, which, you know, People that haven't been in bands wouldn't wouldn't know this, but there's a certain uh, thing where not all bands, and in a sense, a lot of the best bands are band are, are, are bands of musicians or creatives that are coming from different angles in some ways, because those different ways that you're coming at things mesh and create what is different about you that puts you out, makes you different to everything else. So therein when we were members of bands one of the best things that i used to enjoy was when we'd get together and one of the other members would say to me oh have you heard this you you'll like this but it's completely different to anything you've ever heard before and then you'll listen to it and it's those moments of random that make those types of music that's that music that artwork that film that book that any any form of media or anything, it's that that gives you more or brings it more to the fore to you because it makes more of an impact on you rather than rather than media or different sort of, you know, Apple Music, Spotify, whatever, mm -hmm. saying to you, oh, you like this, you'll like this as well because it's very much like what you already listened to. It's those elements of random, like um, I'm going to shout out here, uh, Jonah Matranga is a good friend of mine online who's a member of, who used to be a member of FAR. But that was a moment of random where I heard that on a Buffy the Vampire Slayer, one of his their songs on there. And I just thought, what the hell is that? Yes. And it's those random moments that make a bigger impact on you. 
No, absolutely. And there is something to the randomness of discovering those where you feel like you're on to something. Like you kind of feel like you just started a treasure hunt. And like, you know, there's there's downsides to all of it and plus sides to all of it. I grew up when, you know, you found that band that you wanted to discover. I I straddled the time where you had to go to a record shop and ask the pretentious yep. record store employee and they look at you like you're a dummy and they either like point you in the direction if you're lucky or they you know make fun of you and then you have to figure it out on your own like i grew up with that like stereotype 100 and then i grew up into the age of napster and limewire and you could find these you know any band that you discovered you could type into this magical little search box and their music would pop up I found less music that way than I, I probably had more music from that era, but the music that I still go back to and listen to now is all the stuff that took a little more for me to find. And, and I had to put myself out there a little bit more to get. And I wonder a lot about like how my kids interact with media and, and how that kind of shapes the way that they consume these things. And it's, I, I I never, I try not to sound like a, you know, old man, get off my lawn type (laughs) person at any point, but I do think there, there was something magical about that time period of discovering things. And like the fact that you would, I I talk about it via mail order all the time. Like some of my favorite bands i discovered because i ordered a record from a record label and they sent me four other records i didn't order because they're like we're just going to throw these in there and see what happens and those are the records that i fell in love with and like i would have never heard about them without that randomness and that whole so i do think there's something special to, to that for sure well i have really good memories of going to a record shop and ordering over from america ordering from record shops like like i said you know far and fishbone and other groups as well you know that we didn't get over here to such a degree and then it is interesting because i mean a lot of people in america had the same way they would import records from the uk but yeah. um you, you know what i've not included on this list of questions and i'm going to throw it out now before we go before we start with all the the clothes and everything are there any favorite artists that you have Ooh, as far as uh, bands or visual artists or a little bit you know, of all of it? Do you know what? You're you're a multimedia person. So you do music, you do artwork, you do your own uh, comic books. Um, do you do your own films as well? Have you done? Your, have you tried that yet? Uh, not too much, only in the way that social media is pushing us all that way. I do a lot of like process videos these days for Instagram and stuff, which is is fun and is like becoming easier to do and i i mean i love like just putting music how much of a difference it makes just putting a song over top of something and like that type of thing but no i haven't got to experiment too much with actual uh video stuff i did get into making puppets for a little bit to uh do some puppet videos with uh, the coffee company that that i work with so that was really fun that's probably the closest i've gotten to actual uh any kind of video making but i mean what who is doing it for me right now like my favorite go-to it's like when i'm feeling stuck and i need to pick something up it's uh basil wolverton and he is one of my favorite comic artists i think he's most well known for his early work on mad magazine he did these grotesque portraits where it is just like teeth coming through lips and like four different eyes and just these ridiculously uh, grotesque caricatures of different types of uh, everything from political characters to just random ones he's made up. And there's something to 
the way that he works that is so inspirational to me. And I've been getting into his work from the 40s, which is a lot of sci-fi comics uh, that are just the most out there things I've read in so long. So yeah, like this very pulpy, very dense black uh, artwork and just so good. So that's probably been my go-to as far as just like a visual inspiration in my everyday. And then I, there's just so much that I get inspired by online. I have a, a wonderful creative kind of community that I'm constantly drawing uh, inspiration from with the people that work that are current artists working. And I mean, that ranges from so many different people from, uh, I guess people that would be more considered like fashion designers and streetwear kind of clothing, apparel, lifestyle cultures to other people making cartoons and cryptid comics and very paranormal stuff. And I, I think that it's hard to name anyone in particular at this point, but I, there's so much going on that I always feel like I want to at least, and I always, I have a um, knee-jerk reaction to talk about these people that worked in the past, like Basil Wolverton or Jack Davis or these EP comic artists that are some of my favorite. And I like to try and start just mentioning that there is this whole modern group of artists that I do draw a lot of inspiration from. And there are people in the cryptic community like Easton Hawk and Jonathan Dodd and uh, Natalie, uh, Shapeless Flame is her uh Instagram handle. There's so many of these people making really weird art that I love. And then there's a lot of others that are just uh, kind of constantly producing things where I'm like, I wish I made that. <laughs> that's how I know. Like that's, that's the stuff right there. If that makes sense. Sorry, that was a long way and probably not a very specific, succinct answer. <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. So are there any standout moments in your show? You know, I mean, because you've gone for, is it over a year now you've gone? Are there, are there any standouts in all of those 365, 370 odd episodes? Yeah, I mean, I think the the biggest standout as far as, uh, especially on the interview side, was probably talking to uh, Mitch Horowitz, who is one of my favorite authors and thinkers of the occult and paranormal in general. He has this beautiful way of marrying the aesthetics of being a punk, like New York punk rocker. He wears leather jackets all the time and like is very much from that world. But he talks about new age thought and Neville Goddard and all of these things that are much more associated with, uh, you know, more of the hippie movement and the new age movement. And there are these two worlds that I love a lot that he meshes together. And one of those people that I always wanted to talk to and probably was in my mind when I originally started the, the podcast, to be like, I'm going to re reach out at some point. But uh, being able to have Mitch on and have that conversation was a big, big, big thing for me for the interview segment. And then, I mean, as far as the daily art podcast, I think one of the biggest things that I've fallen in love with recently is the weird Delaware segments that I do every Wednesday. And those have been super fun because it's allowed me to really dig into some local folklore that has always been on my periphery, but haven't had, you know, an excuse to really go down and really do some deep diving. And I get to work with Vuk on those a lot. He sends me, he's much more of a researcher and he's really good at like finding the good stuff and sending it my way. So I, uh, I think those, that's been starting. That has been another big turning point for me. Shout out to Book there. Any anybody that's really interested in the strange, the unusual, paranormal, or any or anything, tracing owls is incredible. And when when he has Crescent on with him, that they're they're great as well. They need to do more oh, episodes yeah. together, those two. I agree. I hope Christina makes some more appearances soon. So that's do my I. Favorite. 
So what advice would you give to people? You know what? We could do this together, actually. What advice would you give to people going into the world of podcasting or into the world of creativity? I think my biggest advice would be the same for both. And that's just have fun with it. Like really. And I, I noticed this a lot in all aspects of things so that once you lose the fun and the enjoyment out of something, then everybody notices. Like you can tell when something has worked over too much or somebody's just going through the motions. And if you feel that that is, if you start something and feel that that's the way you're going, leaving's always an option. Like if I honestly got through a year of doing this podcast and didn't feel like it was something that I really enjoyed doing, I would not be doing it anymore. I have so many projects that lay on the studio floor or in a drawer somewhere, all these things, because I got really into it and then realized that it wasn't supporting what I really love or it wasn't clicking anymore. And I just leave it behind. So I think do take away that barrier, allow yourself to start it and have fun with it. And then once it's not fun, just stop doing it, leave it, like go, go stick with what is enjoy, enjoyable for you. Because the only way to really make things a ongoing project is to enjoy them. If you're not having fun with it, you're not going to want to get up and do it. Like I, I look forward to getting up and rambling into the microphone every day, regardless of what's going on with the rest of my life. So I think that's probably my biggest uh, piece of advice is just have fun. But don't you think that the fact that you are doing your artwork and then talking about it, it's opening you up to understanding where that creativity comes from and where the inspiration comes from. And then it's almost like, um, is, is it like a acceptance of that or is it a, okay, I'm inspired by this. What else can I be inspired about? Because I know that that inspires me. Does it make you more open to to realize to being going out of the comfort zone creatively? Yeah, it does, but almost in a different way. And almost like the more that I am reflective about this stuff and really honest with myself, the more I feel like it's something that is not from within, if that makes sense. That it's yep. it's it's something Same. that we're, yep. we're we're tapping into and like it has really made me fit with ideas like polypsychism and animism and these big consciousness things that I think really that's uh, the, the end benefit of living a creative life is that you realize how much you are not the center of it all and that you're connecting to something much bigger and that we're all connected to that same thing and anybody has access to it and it's all about it's all about quieting down and reflecting and wanting to, to access it. So my podcast definitely allows me to, to think about those things and remind myself to get out of my way. A lot of the times I, I think about this, uh, in a long lines of the way that Ram Dass would talk about, um, essentially when people get these spiritual downloads and stuff, or they get really into creativity or have some sort of success or following, they start kind of uh, beating people over the head with the fact that they have to do it their way. And why aren't you living like me? And why aren't you creating? And the way that Ram Dass always said is that, or thought about it was like, that's never going to work. All I'm going to do is stand in the middle of the street and bounce this ball. I'm going to be standing here, smiling, bouncing the ball. And as soon as anybody wants to come join me and bounce this ball, they're welcome. If they don't want to bounce the ball, that's fine. They don't got to come out and bounce this ball, but I'm going to sit here, have a great time bouncing the ball. And as soon as they want to join me, awesome. And I kind of think about that 
with ideas that the more that I can just kind of stop and sit there still and bounce that ball in my brain and have fun with things, the more of those ideas from wherever they come from are going to be attracted to that. Uh, Everybody, everything wants to have an enjoyable time. And I think ideas have some personhood to them. So the happier you are, the more enjoyable you find the creative endeavor, the more those ideas are going to be attracted to you, if that makes sense or isn't too far out there. (laughs) It really does. It really does make sense. So what shows do you like to listen to yourself? Yeah, well, uh, Tracing Owls is definitely one that's way up there for me. Uh, Vuk, as far as my uh, what's changed my life via this podcast, my interactions with Vuk is a giant one. He's been a, a not only a great source of inspiration, but a, a friend that is very, very, it's a relationship I really value. And his his show is very important to me. So I definitely think people should check that out. It's uh, it's wonderful. But uh, outside of the paranormal stuff, I listen to a ton of paranormal stuff, but I feel like people probably, uh, well, so since I'm probably talking to a bit of a different audience than I'm used to talking to, I guess I will name a couple paranormal ones that I really yeah. love. And I mean, uh, my go-tos are things like Our Strange Skies, which is Rob Christofferson's, uh, one of my favorite UFO and extraterrestrial podcasts. I love um, the Kryptonaut podcast, which is, again, just a bunch of really high strange stories and three friends pretty much just BSing about a bunch of weird stuff. And and those are usually my favorite on the other side of things that still have to do with the weird, there's shows that um, there's a show called Weird Studies. That's one of my favorite shows out there, and it's done by two one of uh, two authors. Uh, I think one of them is a college professor, but they look at these ideas that we've been talking about in a very kind of academic and very uh, very creative lens, but in a way that is very different. So they'll talk about ufos and they'll talk about cryptids and all of these things but they'll talk about it from much more of a cultural and imaginal and, and artistic lens that's super interesting to me so yeah weird studies is a big one out there and then i think the uh, my most listened to podcast consistently is one i mentioned earlier the doughboys i listen to it every thursday i've been listening to it for years there's something about like I, comedy podcasts are a big one for me and one that i I flip through a lot. I don't usually stick with certain comedy podcasts for too long, but Doughboys has been there forever. So they're probably some of my favorites that I could name off the top of my head. (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you for speaking with me today. So where can people find you and get hold of you then, Todd? Yeah, no, thanks for having me, Marv. This has been a blast. Um, The easiest place is createmagicstudios.com. It has the podcast. It has the Patreon. It has my shop. I just put out a uh, collection of personal folklore, which is the weirdo art zine that I do. So it's a lot of the comics from Instagram that I post and some stuff that is only found in the zine. And I just, for a long time, I was self-publishing them in my, or I'm still self-publishing them, but for a long time, I was printing them myself in my garage on a broken down old copier. But I've I have uh, taken a step up to getting them professionally printed and have a bunch of them. So that's been the big project for me recently is getting this collection out there. And yeah, you can find that all there. And then Instagram is my main social media outlet. So I am at Todd D E 85. It's a weird handle, but if you just search Todd purse, it comes up pretty quick. So yeah, that's about where you can find me. 
Okay. You can find Pods Like Us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, and we are available through podslikeus at gmail.com. If you go to Patreon, you can find us as well just by looking at looking for Pods Like Us. Uh, all sorts of things on there. Anyway, thanks for speaking with me today, Todd. Thank you. This was a blast. It was. And thank you, everyone, for listening. And hope you listen again to another episode of Pods Like Us. <laughs>
it's almost like a spiritual thing where you have to allow that inspiration to come in. It's there in the ether. You just have to grab hold of it and be mm-hmm. except you have to just be able to bring it in there. And that's almost like a one-to-one. You can't have anybody else there at that specific yes. moment. No, I completely agree. And I think there's all kinds of different types of inspiration, but that specific moment you're talking about is very personal very personal and very much uh, different for everybody who's creating. And I think that it really does have to do with that quietness and allowing yourself to quiet down. And when I'm really working, especially in a sketchbook, doing that like kind of sketching, morning journaling idea phase of things, then I notice my brain, the voice inside is going really fast for a while. And then as soon as I hit something that I'm enjoying, whether it's a shape that I'm drawing or an idea, a little phrase, then that voice quiets down a little bit more. And then as I keep following that little breadcrumb trail, the voice gets quieter and quieter. And that's when like the real ideas come out is the the quieter that voice gets, the louder the ideas get. And the more that I kind of lean into that idea, it, it's like uh, symbiotic. It, it feeds itself and those ideas come easier so that when I'm around the kids and I'm around other people and doing the the necessary life socialness and everything i can still allow for those little bits of inspiration to come in because i've found that it, you don't have as long as you have that quiet time you can allow the loudness and the uh the brightness and the, the kind of booming of life to filter in all the other time and that Im- impacts the quiet time if that makes sense because <laughs> i'm gonna have to grab that and put it into the main body of the show i think <laughs> That's awesome. Well, we can we can jump in whenever uh, you can use anything that we've recorded so far. I'm I'm down to uh, to get rolling for sure. Your okay. conversation with Vuk was wonderful. Uh, def- definitely very inspirational for me, and I, I appreciate all the kind words. And it was it was very nice. It's it's so weird, like doing pod i'm sure you know this too but like just doing anything with like a podcast or putting things out there you never know like how it's clicking with people or like you know it's very it's always nice to get those little uh feedback points especially the positive ones <laughs> it is really is right how do we do this i like what you're doing i don't know what it is but i, I like it so I'm just going to put my phone on silent here. Share screen. Share sound. Right. You can see my screen now. All right. Yep. Yes, I can. Right. Let's do it this way then. This way I don't have to mess about with editing because it's all in there. Oh, that's even better. Here we go. <laughs> now you're speaking my language. 